Hi, I'm Daniel Lightfoot, Business Manager at Syngenta Ornamentals, and welcome to the podcast special, a timely and important look at some of the real issues and developments in professional horticulture, featuring interviews and insights from experts all across the industry. This special episode delves into technical issues, new developments, and the practical challenges that our industry faces day in, day out. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Daniel Leifert and today we are going to be looking at red spider mite, which I know has been a big issue in 2020. Today we're joined by Ant Surridge, who's making his second appearance on the podcast and for making his debut is uh, Alex Matthews from Fargrow. Alex, you've not been on the podcast before, so no, can you uh, tell me a little bit about yourself? I'm one of the technical specialists at, um, at Fargrow, so I deal with IPM um, related um, issues. So if I go out to growers and basically discuss with them issues they might be having in the crop with any pests or disease issues and basically try and um, overcome these with an IPM approach. So looking at your cultural methods of control, your biologicals, and then finally looking at any chemical methods that um, are an option to look at. Great and fantastic for today's subject on, on Red Spider My Ant, uh, welcome. So um, I, I hear your role has changed uh, recently. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Great to be back on the podcast. Um, yeah, so last time I was on, I was a technical development specialist. I've made the, the jump up to technical development manager, um, which is um, pretty much the, the same role, just with some more responsibilities around um, regulatory procedures for our plant protection products as well as development of um, the wider portfolio in ag tech, as well as biopesticides and conventional chemistry that fits into an IPM program. So, uh, yeah, a little bit of a change, but not too much. No, fantastic. Congratulations. So last year, we had a lot of people send messages, ask questions about red spider mite, and I thought it would be perfect this year to have a look at it and, you know, deep dive a little bit more into some of the challenges and, and some of the issues. And, yeah, with Alex here on the call, I think can offer some really great insights. So we'll start with, with Alex. With, with Red Spider Mike, can you kind of, you know, for, for growers out there and, and anybody who's interested, um, discuss identification, life cycle, what conditions favour the growth of the pest, what time of year, like the, the kind of things that growers should be looking out for and, and, and a little bit about it in, in some detail, please. So looking at the identification first, predominantly you will see uh, two spotted spider mite within the crop. So these, um, the adults will have a distinct two spots on their, on their, um, on their abdomen. So um, that's quite distinctive. Uh, if, if they reach um, high levels, you'll then um, see a webbing stage, which is um, a stage that you really don't, don't want to reach with these. Um, in terms of the damage they they, produce, um, they cause on the uh, across the crop, they create um, a speckled pattern across the leaf surface, which then turns yellow. This is due to them uh, biting into the um, into the um, leaf surface itself and sucking out the contents of the cells. The adults are generally um, 0.7 of a mil in length, um, and yeah, they they can be seen crawling across the across the webbing um, but the eggs are laid on the generally on the underside of the leaf um, and can be seen suspended in that webbing uh, in terms of the life cycle there's five different stages and I'll just go through them so you've got firstly the egg stage these are 
spherical and round and translucent. So as I said, you'll see them generally laid on the underside of the leaf. This is then followed by a larval stage, um, two nymph stages. So you've got the protonymph, medusa nymph stages, and then finally the adult. The larval stage, nymph stages and adult stages undergo a skin shedding phase. So you can see those skins within the crop. Um, and the life cycles do vary. Um, so about 15 degrees, they'll go through this life cycle within 35 days. However, if you're getting up to temperatures of about 25 degrees, they will um, go through this life cycle a lot quicker. So within about nine days. So you can see they, they can really rapidly reproduce within the crop and become quite a big issue within those heated environments. So they're, they're really key to get on top of early. In unheated environments, you'll, they'll go through a dipole stage. So this is sort of like a hibernation stage where the mated females will basically enter, enter this dipole. And this is um, brought about by reducing temperatures, reducing day length and reduced um, plant nutrition. They will turn orange, so they will. Um, this is when they're in their microcolony state, so this is really a good time to sort of target them. And then they'll emerge. Um, the mated females will emerge and then start up those colonies in late February, March time when the temperatures increase. And um, yeah, they they favour the warm, dry environment, so low humidity, um, so which is where they can rapidly reproduce within those environments. So, so temperature is. Um seems like a, a real issue so is that, is that from a kind of preventative point of view or something that a grower needs to think about is it is it around certain temperatures that is going to be the key dry, driver here or, or really important yeah yeah the, the the temperatures are really key and they're key for building an effective ipm program as well because if you're using biologicals you want to try and select your biologicals based on the temperature it is a real key factor and a factor that you need to look at if you're going to create that real effective IPM strategy. So I think from, from my experience, um, we get a lot of people that ask about, you know, is this um, red spider mite or, or could it be something else? And, and I think with diseases or, or pests, it, there's always some kind of concern whether they've identified it correctly because then they can you know kind of put the right treatment on so and is there any kind of way that maybe you know it can be misidentified or is there real things that growers really need to look out for so they know exactly what they've got and they can treat it accordingly yeah absolutely i mean like you say a lot of these things especially in their earlier stages can look like um quite a lot of different um pests or diseases something that i just pick up on in uh, the previous answer from alex um is around like the, the time of year that you need to be expecting this sort of thing, especially in the unheated environment. So if you think that they go into diapause when the photo period and the temperature start to drop, um, conversely, as the temperature start to increase and the photo period starts to increase, the days start getting longer, you start seeing the issues. So as you start heading into the warmer part of spring, you're going to start seeing issues. Additionally to that, um, the, the heat and the lower humidities are preferred. So that leads you to think that, you know, edge effect is going to be a driving force in the areas that are going to start having um, infections first. So the edge of the crop can often be more susceptible. That's also doubly an issue if you've got open ended tunnels or glass houses and they might blow in from uh, hedgerows. So it's worthwhile looking at that edge as it often is for pretty much all pests and diseases because it tends to be the edge that's going to get issues first. In terms of um, mistaken identity of different um, pests or diseases, something that growers have um, had issues with is around the speckling of the plants. 
So especially with um, hypernecrotic spider mite damage, it can look like um, deficiencies, specifically uh, manganese deficiencies. So hypernecrotic damage is less common for a lot of growers. I think it was a bit of an issue in tomatoes at one point, but generally the speckling can be mistaken for nutrients deficiency. See what these spider mites are doing is scraping and sucking and pulling out the chlor uh, chlorophyll, which can give you that yellowing color. So if you start seeing that as an issue in the crop, um, that could be a whole range of things. So it's worthwhile flipping over the leaf, having a look at what's there. In terms of the different mites that could be mistaken for, if you were to see it, there's a few different species that are potentially going to be seen by growers. So two spotted spider mite is uh, Tetranicus urtici. Um, and the most common one that it's going to be mistaken with is the Lewis mite, which is um, Etro Tetranicus. Um, and that tends to be smaller than the common glasshouse spider mite. It's yellowish with dark spots. It's a similar life cycle and similar sort of leaf damage. But those two points at the start of being slightly smaller and being uh, yellowish, um, those are the key giveaways. And that's important, obviously, for when you're constructing your um, IPM program, which macrobiological controls you're going to use and potentially which um, biopesticides you might be using. There's one more species that potentially it could be uh, mistaken for, which is the Paniacus species. Uh, so in the Paniacus species, you have... Um, Paniacus olmi and uh, Paniacus uh, citri, so the fruit tree spider mite and the, um, the citrus spider mite. Uh, and again, there are some key differences between the two species. So if you look at Tetanicus urtici, that adult mite, the color varies from green to red as it feeds, whereas Paniacus olmi is a sort of reddish brown, a bit darker color. And the key giveaway is there's white spots around the base of the hairs in Paniacus species. So that's a pretty clear giveaway. Um, again, the damage can be quite similar. Uh, the eggs look different. So if you see the eggs, uh, eggs of Titanicus urtici will be transparent and round, whereas the Panayaka species are a dark red egg. So there are some key differentiating factors that you can look at. Again, with all these pests and diseases, you know, there's, there's so many out there and they look so different and they can be very minute differences. So I'd always say that if you are having issues, take pictures, send it into us at Fargrow Technical or even put it in a um, plastic bag and then post it in and we can have a look at it under the microscope and then use that to help inform your IPM program. But if they wanted a quick reference, is there any kind of key places you'd send them to to, to look at? You know, Google can always be a yeah. very difficult place to identify due to, the, you know, if you put it into images, you probably get a million different things. So, you know, where would yeah. you go as well as Fargrow? Maybe talk about how you can support a little bit in, in that area. Yeah, so I'd say, see, in terms of typing into Google, you're going to get all sorts of stuff um, pop up. Generally, the first thing that pops up is the RHS um, advice on it, which does tend to be pretty good. But if you're looking for specifics, especially specifics that are then going to lead on to what macrobiological controls or biopesticides to use, then um, websites see like um, Fargrows or also the other big biological suppliers, so Bioline AgroSciences, Copper, BioBest, they'll all have descriptive um parts to their website that will outline the sort of characteristics you're looking for as well as high definition pictures next to them. Uh, if you want a bit more detail on the sort of whole concept of IPM and ID and different macrobiological controls, one of our um, IPM specialists at Fargo, Neil Hellier, has a biological control book uh, and that book's really useful. It outlines all the ID characteristics but then also how you'd go about controlling all of the different pests and diseases from a point of view of um, cultural controls, mechanical, physical, macrobiological, biopesticides, and then finally uh, conventional chemistry. 
And obviously with these books, you know, as soon as they're printed, they're out of date in terms of approval process, but the way it's written by Neil, it sort of gives you the concepts that you need to follow. So although the exact products might change, the concept around starting with a low risk macrobiological, then moving up the uh, tiers through to slightly more broad spectrum chemistry, if you're having issues controlling is uh, still holds true. So, so Alex, you're new into Fargo, but do you, is this an area where you're working? And, um, you know, do you get many people sending things in? Yeah, we do. We get quite a few samples in of all sorts. So, yeah, um, we've, we've got a microscope in the office. So we do have, um, yeah, as I said, quite a few samples sent in. So any any um, suspected pests that aren't can't be completely identified, then, yeah, we will. Um, we do provide that service of, of looking, looking, um, at samples of people and then and then discussing options for control no i think from my own experience it's the most important part if you don't identify it correctly then the the treatment you use you know waste money waste time and and can cause more damage than than necessary but talking about damage how big um i'm not sure who wants to answer this question but how how big do the numbers have to get before you start actually seeing some damage i know we want preventative maintenance but you know i i, I guess that's not always the easiest thing to do so do you is there a kind of threshold where you really need to keep it under control yeah it's it's the webbing stage really that that's key with these and the webbing stage is really where you get the high populations of where it can create an issue for biologicals and also for a spray program as well. So, um, for example, when when you reach the webbing stage, uh, species such as Amblyseus do uh, can struggle to get um, across this webbing and actually into the colonies to target them. Um, Phytocelus is much better at this, but um, yeah, and and for a spray program, just it creates an issue trying to penetrate through the webbing itself and actually trying to eradicate those colonies from the crop so yeah i i, I couldn't give a, a definite answer of what how many is too many but i'd say that stage is really where you don't want to get to really where you what you want to avoid yeah, yeah and i'll just um follow up and pick up on the concept that obviously the the numbers and the thresholds are going to be crop dependent so if you're growing a crop where you're not selling the leaves. So you're looking at driving um, uh, fruit growth and then yield of fruit for something like tomatoes or cucumbers. Potentially you can take a bit of um, aesthetic damage that the speckling might cause. Whereas with uh, ornamental crops that are being sold purely on how they look, uh, the speckling obviously is gonna put you outside the grades and you're not gonna sell as many. Um, but even with either crop, the issue with um, something like spider mite is once it's there and if the conditions are favorable especially in the english summer there is the potential for these populations to really boom quite quickly so it's worthwhile especially with um, spider mite which we have a very established biocontrol program for thinking about having those early applications of products like andersoni to that are better at the low temperatures and then coming in later with stuff like phytocellus when you start seeing small issues or even when the temperatures start picking up before you see issues because once you start finding patches and the temperatures are there to drive the population growth, it can get out of hand very quickly. Yeah, no, I think that's what brings us on, you know, perfectly to probably the, the, the main point really in terms of control. So I, I guess there's always the debate of preventative, curative, um, IPM strategies. So can you, you know, from, from your opinion, how would you go about kind of producing a, an integrated pest management and, you know, how does that, 
involve you know biologicals you've talked of chemical controls cultural you know how would you build it kind of you know and what do you think that the growers need to think about when they're doing that yeah sure so i'll use one of my favorite quotes from a guy called charlie mckenzie which is um start clean stay clean so the most important thing you can do with uh, any ipm program for any pest or any disease is try and have a clean start so if you think about the ipm pyramid that base block is the fundamental base that's holding the rest of it up. And if you get that solid base block right, the rest of it's going to fall into place more easily. So if you can ensure that you've got a clean start, that's absolutely crucial. So you mentioned earlier about the diapores in uh, colder environments. Um, so stuff like polytunnels or um, uh, colder glass houses. These um, spider mite can diapause in areas that you might not necessarily expect. So like in canes or around pots. So if you can ensure that you're keeping all of that sort of stuff clean, um, whether it be through um, using a, a cleanup spray at the end of the season or perhaps using a cleaning spray in the off season when there's no crop in um, or even looking at changing out the plastics um, or perhaps putting in some, some new matting or something to try and reduce the percentage chance that there's going to be diapausing um, populations there, that can get you off to a strong start. As well as that, um, making sure that the crops that you're getting in are clean so when you're bringing crops in, obviously you want to have a good relationship with your supplier of young plants anyway, but ensuring that when they're coming in, you're going through them with a hand lens, just making sure that there's nothing untowards there. And if there is, then you know, putting it in an area where you can quarantine the plant for a bit, see what happens before you move it out into the crop at large. So you reduce the risk of having a, a widespread infection. See, there's all the really basic stuff around um, hygiene as well that's key so i mentioned earlier the cleanup sprays and stuff just ensuring that there's less of a green bridge around the site so um, reducing down the weeds um, there are potential hedgerow species that might be an issue thinking about how you can control that so maybe if you have a end of a tunnel that's very close to a hedgerow putting up some kind of netting between the tunnel and the hedging that could potentially reduce the impact coming in from the hedges and so that's not just going to be beneficial for spider mites but pests and diseases across the board. Obviously the cultural controls in terms of environmental conditions for the development of spider mites can be tricky because when you start getting into the times of year, when they start developing in warmer, um, less humid conditions, it's very difficult to control what the sun's doing. Um, and try as you might, you can have the best environmental control system in the world. It's gonna be quite difficult uh, to keep a glass house not getting hot. Um, so often it means that you know that period's coming, so it's about how you establish that biocontrol program effectively before you have the spider mites um, becoming an issue. So on the uh, biocontrol program, I'll, I'll hand over to Alex to outline a few of the macrobiological controls. Yeah, thanks, Ant. Yeah, just to, just to go over really what Ant said, just trying to minimise those refuge areas in the crop is really key. Any places where the spider mites, um, diapause females can hide, um, is really key and trying to make the environment as hospitable to the um, spider mites as possible really. Um, I mean even looking at things like overhead irrigation I mean it can create an issue for um, for certain diseases but it, it can put spider mites off to a certain extent because as we said they like the um, drier environment so um, just running through the uh, biological options we've got um, so macrobiologicals I'll start with um, Amblyseus sandersoni. So this is one of the native predators and, and very useful earlier on in the season for unheated environments. So the active uh, temperatures start around um, six degrees. 
and um, it's really good for targeting those um, microcolonies of spider mites earlier on in the um, season. So, so trying to um, get into those microcolonies and actually um, try and eradicate as much as possible um, before before they really take off into the season. So, um, these these native predators are really are really useful because they've got a versatile diet. So they won't just go for two spotted spider mite. They'll also um, go after some of the um, other species of spider mite that I mentioned earlier. So citrus um, spider mite and fruit tree spider mite. Also uh, uh, various gall mites. And even they will even target young thrips larvae. So yeah, really useful predator um, for early on in the season. And then moving on to Phytocelus, this is the a go-to predator that a lot of people turn to within heat environments is it is so effective at targeting um, two-spotted spider mites. So active temperature, active temperature start around 15 degrees for this predator, and it's it, it is used as a, a curative method of control. So um, if you if you've got areas of hot spots with spider mites um, in the crops, so um, it's quite good to sort of, um, we, we offer a, uh, a 2000 uh, vial um, packet and then people literally just go around the colonies and sprinkle them around the outside. So the spider mite, uh, the phytocelus um, will eat its way into the colony and really effectively eradicate the, the spider mite from the crop. It's very mobile through the crop as well. So as we mentioned earlier, it can get across the webbing. Um, a lot easier than Amblyseus, so a good option for control for eradicate, um, going towards eradicating the spider mites of the crop. The only issue is it has problems with uh, lower humidity, um, which spider mites themselves favour. So um, you can have an issue where um, Phytocelus won't move its way up into the top of the canopy. So you, you can have an issue where if you're just relying on, on um, Phytocelus in the hotter months, you can get an issue where you'll you'll get the spider mites webbing at the top uh, in the upper canopy and the phytocelus sitting in the lower canopy. So um, under full in, um, full enclosure, there's the predatory species that we also offer, which is Amblyseus californicus. Um, this is uh, a licensed predator, and um, as the name suggests, it, it has come across um, from California. Um, California. This, uh, this is much better adapted to the hotter environments and the humid um, and the lower humidities as well. So it's really effective at targeting the um, these spider mites in the upper parts of the canopy. So you can complement the bio program quite well with these two predatory predatory mites. So uh, the Californicus will also target the Tarsonid mites and have that versatile diet as well. So it can also sustain itself on pollen. So it can um, keep itself going whilst there's quite a low pest pressure in the crop. Uh, however, it does have a preference for the spider mites. So um, it's really good at keeping those populations at bay. And then I'll just finally go um, go into macro, um, talk about Macrolophus as well, which is also a very useful predator. So we use this as quite a, general, uh, a very good generalist predator um, on, uh, to establish within the crop. So the key thing of this is to introduce it early. Um, because it does have a longer generation time, um, it just takes a bit of time to get going and can require a bit of um, food supplement just to just to really kick it off. They also target whitefly, two-thrasolutra, caterpillars, and leaf miner and aphids. But we use them alongside, uh, often alongside banker plants in certain crops. So the banker plants are more desirable to the pests, 
such as aubergines that we use. So they, they effectively pull the pest species out of the crop and onto these bank plants where the macrolophus will actually predate them on these plants and they will also reproduce so on, on the plants themselves. So a really good method of, of effectively controlling um, pests within the crop. Yeah, it seems like there's a, a lot of things that you can do. And um, for, for me, it's interesting. I love that kind of start clean, stay clean. You, you start in a clean environment, you create the right cultural control and you build a biological strategy around that. But, you know, I think we've all uh, been in environments where maybe we haven't managed to get it quite right or there's other challenges or the weather, you know, really drives the pest in the wrong direction. So if you look at a cultural um, control, what, what kind of chemical options then may be available or biological cultural con- options? But, you know, if, if it gets established, you know, what do you do then? Yeah, yeah. So obviously um, it is one of these pests that once it kicks off, it can kick off pretty quickly. Um, so, so as growers and as um, agronomists, we need to have solutions that knock it back down into line so we can look at establishing a program of biological controls, which tend to not perform so well when firefighting. So initially, if we look at some of the biopesticides that potentially could be used, so um, there's some entomopathogenic funguses that are quite good on spider mites, so Bavaria bassiana. Um, which um, is available as uh, Natralis L, um, which is going to have a label extension in the next um, year or so that will actually include spider mite, but we know it's efficacious on spider mites and there's a lot of growers that are using it. This is an entomopathogenic fungus that will attach onto the cuticle of uh, the insect, use penetration pegs and various enzymes to get into it and then feed on the hemolymph within and then sporulate back out again. So it's one that you might take a while to actually see the insect die but as soon as it's infected, it's uh, not going to be feeding anymore and not going to be causing the damage or reproducing. Um, So that's a really good product to use. Um, Another one that's uh, got quite quick knockdown are the the fatty acid-based products. Um, So stuff like Tech Bomb or Flipper, as well as some of the other contact acting products like SB Plant Invigorator. These can be really useful, especially if you've got small patches that are breaking out. If you use something like SB Plant Invigorator, especially in a small spray bottle, you can clear up patches of spider mite quite quickly. Um, that can be quite useful as well in um, ornamental situations where perhaps you're in a show area and you've got the public in and out and there's a bit of hesitancy to use too much um, conventional chemistry. Stuff like plant, um, SB Plant Invigorator is very useful for that to just clear up small areas. So you've got your entomopathogenic funguses, your fatty acids that are very effective, um, and then once stuff really starts getting out of control, we have some, some key chemical options that we can look at. So abamectin as Dynamex, really key. Um, it's uh, an excellent product in terms of its very quick immobilization of the pest. It's contact and translamina. So the reason that that's really key is we mentioned earlier that these populations, they can start to build up, start to web. If you have that translaminar action, you start pushing the active ingredient through the leaf and you can target the spider mites that are scraping and feeding below. So that's really useful. Uh, The residues themselves break down relatively rapidly in sunlight. So there is the ability to integrate biocontrols back into the program. Obviously, abamectin, it integrates into a biocontrol program, but you have to give a window after application. So if you use some of the um, big uh, suppliers of biological controls websites, uh, such as BioLine, Copper and BioBest, they'll have on there the number of days that you should be leaving between the application of abamectin and then the application or reapplication of biocontrols to make them work effectively. 
Um, and the way we think of it is, you know, at this point at the top of the pyramid, when you're starting to have issues that are out of control, there really is no other option but to use a spray like this to knock the population pressure back down so you can go back in with macrobiological controls. Trying to firefight with the macrobiological controls will work eventually, but it's not going to be a very economically viable way of controlling. So abamectin is a really excellent product to knock your pest population back down so you can go back down a few, like, few rungs down the pyramid start reintegrating your macrobiological controls and your biopesticides. So a, a really, really useful product. It, is that where you see it at the moment? It's very much integrated pest control with chemicals and biologicals. And I think trying to fit the two of those together in the right strategy. I yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd agree. It's along those lines. I've had some some quite interesting conversations recently with um, loads of different suppliers as well as growers. Um saying that you know, there's these really ambitious and they're great goals to try and move towards regenerative agriculture and fully sustainable farming practices. The issue is for commercial growers, if you go from one end where you're very used to using conventional chemistry very regularly, which a lot of the UK industry is still used to, I mean, 10 years ago, which is uh, not that long ago, especially in um, grower organisations, they were using a lot of hard conventional chemistry to now this point where we're looking at um, organic crop production where you're just using macrobiological controls and just using biopesticides it's a big jump and the potential for things to go wrong there is is quite large especially with an inexperienced um grower once they gain experience and confidence in the products and when to apply them and how to apply them we know it is possible but it's important that we don't try and jump everyone over that massive um massive uh, massive jump across from uh, entirely chemically based to entirely regenerative or biologically controlled based is the steps in between. So with key products like Dynamic, you can have your IPM program, but then you know there's something you can fall back upon to knock the population pressure back down and then go back in with it. So it's really important that growers and agronomists understand that there is the potential just to reduce down the amount of conventional chemistry that's being used through integrating these products smartly. No, I, I think you're right. I think, Alex, is there anything you wanted to, to add? Yeah, just to really say that's really what, what a key thing of what we look into really is trying to help growers actually integrate these, these biologicals into their program and um, looking at, they're, they're basically giving us over their sprayer program and then we'll discuss with them what is compatible, looking at any potential side effects on the biologicals, looking at, um, how uh, timings of when to apply in 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 terms of when you're putting in your biologicals and yeah just just trying to get the two um compatible is really key i, I think looking at what you talked about earlier especially you alex with all of the kind of macro biological options mm -hmm. There's a lot out there. A lot of it maybe is new to people and a lot of it that people don't understand which type. It, it, it seems to be you know moving forward at a pace with a lot of different things. Like, you know, where do people go or what's the best way to kind of educate yourself around learning these particular things? Because even for me, I, you know, I work in it and and a lot of the, you know, the way that you were talking, I'm like, right, okay, cool. Yeah, I'm kind of writing stuff down as I'm, I'm going, trying to make a note of things to ask you. And I thought, wow, that's an, an awful lot of different options. You know, well, how... <laughs> yeah, well yeah listen to podcasts and us talking about it i think but that it, it and that's great because yeah. it, it kind of shows what all of the the challenges are and, yeah. and, and the wide variety of options people uh, have got so you know how, how do how do people keep up to date with all of this 
there, there are a lot of options to look at in terms of education. So um, AHDB, they produce some really fantastic um, talks and they really dive into all the areas. So that's really a key area if you, if you want to learn um, about all of these new biologicals that are coming in and how to integrate them into your growing system. It's a really key area to look at. Um, uh, obviously, we offer technical support through our technical lines, so um, we're there um, through the week um, to offer any advice people might might have, or we offer, uh, we offer visits as well to go into these growers and actually discuss through their um, growing system and how they can integrate these bios into their um, into their growing system. So, um, looking at books as well, so um, and as well um, mentioned Neil's book as well, and there's some really good reading material in these in these sources um, to actually for people to to pick it up and to really run with it. Um, I think now is really the time as soon as they can integrate these into their system is really key because I think as time goes on it's going to become more and more of an issue the chemical applications and and with the reduction of of different products on the market um, it sort of narrows the field growers have to turn to so then you have an issue with resistance management and, and these sort of things so the earlier the the growers can really turn to these sort of methods of growing is um the better really I, I, in my personal opinion no and and you know i, I work for syngenta and um I, I i'll concur you know i think some of the it, it's challenging you know i think companies like uh, us are working incredibly hard to mm-hmm to su- support the registrations, but it, it is really, really difficult, especially in really niche environments like ornamentals. I think that's one of the challenging things. It's not it's not like agriculture where probably the scale allows uh, allows that. I think we've all got to work very hard in, in ornamentals to kind of create the right opportunities for growers. And I think interestingly, the biologicals will come under probably more regulatory scrutiny as time goes on because if more people are using it, there's more... Mm-hmm more exposure there's more there's more use then i think i think then it will move and there'll be even tighter regulations around it so like it's a really fascinating insight guys thank you so much for uh participating in the in the podcast fascinating stuff and um yeah we look forward to catching up with you guys soon so thank you very much indeed yeah absolutely yeah thanks a lot Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you want to know more about Syngenta Ornamentals, then please visit our new website, syngentaornamentals.co.uk and have a look at the Syngenta blog, which is on there as well, which gives some really good technical information about some of the issues that growers are facing at the moment. You can find us on social media, on Instagram and Facebook. Just look for Syngenta Ornamentals. If you have any questions, please email me at daniel.lightfoot.com at syngenta.com enjoy the rest of the day